for the past, present, and future of all animals. This is the Zookeeper's Voice with your host, Danny Jirasi. Hello, and welcome to the Zookeeper's Voice. I'm your host, Danny. Today on the show, we have Dr. Heather Hill from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Heather Hill has been a professor of psychology for 16 years and a marine mammal researcher for 22 years. Let's dive into our chat with Dr. Heather Hill. Today on the line, we have Dr. Heather Hill from St. Mary's University. Thank you for joining us on the Zookeeper's Voice today, Heather. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Danny. Thanks for having me on today. It's so great to be able to catch up with you after not being able to see you and talk to you for a while. So I'm so excited to get to sit down and chat with you. Same here. It's It's been a real privilege watching you uh, change all of your ideas and, and career moves as you've gone forward. So way to go. Thank you so much. Well, why don't you tell our listeners um, a little bit about your background and how you got into the research of marine mammals? Sure. Happy to do that. So um, way back when, when I was a little kid, I really, really liked animals. And I read every single possible book that I could read in our library at my elementary school. And in uh, the late 1980s, SeaWorld San Antonio opened up. And I went for the very first time and sat in awe like many kids, you know, watching the whales jump out of the water and the dolphins jump out of the water. And you know, I looked at them and I said, that's what I want to be. I want to be a trainer uh, when I grow up or a veterinarian. Um, and so as the years went on, I continued to be really interested in marine mammals and was very, uh, very curious about how dolphins talk to one another and their communication. And um, as I went into college, I had still wanted to, you know, think about being a trainer and think about uh, possibly going to veterinary school. But I realized ultimately veterinary science wasn't my idea of a good time that I really enjoyed behavior. And so then I started thinking, well, maybe I'll go to graduate school and become a, a clinical psychologist using dolphins and therapy with children. And that was something that kind of kept me you know, motivated and guided uh, through the years while I was going through college. And then as I got to the end of my college career and realized that Maybe that that idea wasn't quite the the best option at the time. Um, I had to kind of take a step back and say, "All right, what should I do with myself?" And that's when a door opened that you know just sort of an opportunity landed in my lap where I was able to go um, go meet my uh, former mentor, Dr. Stan Kuchai, um, who had just shortly moved to Mississippi and was. Um, starting a new program. And his new program at the graduate school uh, for psychology was in experimental psychology with an emphasis in marine mammal cognition, which was completely cool. And when he said he was also interested in studying the acoustic system and communication system of dolphins, I was like, all right, this is the right place for me to be. And that kind of started it all back in 1997, um, where I went to the University of Southern Miss and joined Stan's lab and started studying uh, dolphins. And at that point, my my life kind of changed a little bit because instead of studying their acoustic system immediately, I started looking at their behavior. And I had the opportunity to watch uh, four bottlenose dolphin calves born over the course of three years that I was there in Mississippi at a, a small um, oceanarium down in Gulfport. 
and started to think, you know, you know, what what sorts of things can we learn from the dolphins that were in a, 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 a habitat like this? And the more I got into the field, the more I realized we just didn't know enough about animals that were held at a zoo or an aquarium. And it, we really needed to do some research. And at that point, I decided, you know, what what's the best thing I could do with my life? Well, let's study the animals that I love watching, bottlenose dolphins, and doing it in a an arena that doesn't have enough research in it yet. And that, that kind of started what's been like a 20 year career so far, 20 plus years of bottlenose dolphins, sea lions, killer whales, um, and belugas. That's so amazing. Oh. Um, and I'm so excited that I've gotten to see some of that. Now, how did you go from there to starting to do research at SeaWorld? Really, uh, again, opportunities, doors opened up, which are just truly, truly incredible. So um, kind of a, a quick little history. I spent three years in Mississippi studying the bottlenose dolphins there and sea lions. And we did cognitive research and behavioral research and really focused on the development of bottlenose, dol bottlenose dolphin calves. And then I moved out to San Diego, where I worked for three years with the Navy Marine Mammal Program. And uh, again, pursued the same kind of questions, but also finally got to talk about the acoustic side and looked at the development of echolocation. And so um, following my three years out in San Diego, we decided to come back to San Antonio, where I actually had started, um, before I ever began graduate school, I, I started a six-month study looking at Pacific white-sided dolphin calf development with uh, one of their first uh, dolphin calves that was born in San Antonio. And... Um, and I really loved it. And I was like, oh, this is my chance to be a trainer. And at that point, I had to make a decision. Do I be a trainer at SeaWorld or do I go to graduate school? Because I couldn't do both. So, right. I, <laughs> so I ended up going to graduate school and did six years studying different things. Um, and then when I came back to San Antonio, I was looking for a tenure track academic position which I finally landed in Saint, at St. Mary's in 2007. But before that, I was able to teach um, at UTSA where I met a young lady by the name of Joanne Nocito, who I think you know very closely. I do, yes. <laughs> and um, she was working on her honors thesis uh, at UTSA at the time, and she also worked at SeaWorld. And at the time, I had asked um, one of our former friends, who I had worked with when I was there in 1997, uh, Chris Bellows, if, if he would be interested in allowing me to continue to pursue some of the work that I was doing as part of my dissertation and then after I was finished with my PhD. And he said, well, find me a student and we'll get started. And, and that's where Joanne came in. And so um, she was able to get permission in 2006 to start exploring how, uh, actually we did three species. We looked at killer whales, we looked at uh, the Pacific white-sided dolphins and belugas and how they enriched themselves on their own time. So what sorts of things did they do for fun uh, while they were, weren't engaged with trainers? And uh, that's where we began. And then while we were there that year collecting data, we knew that there were going to be two beluga calves born pretty soon. And so that was the point at which I said, hey... Would you be interested in pursuing um, a development study with belugas? Because not much had been done with beluga research and captive belugas that have been published on their development and, and their social interactions and, and how they worked as a species compared to bottlenose dolphins. And so they said, sure, come on in and let's get started. And so that began the, the stage for a beluga study that 
is one of the of its own kind in the world. We've been going for, I think, 12 years now, looking at beluga calf development and maternal care behaviors. And now we've expanded to the entire uh, social grouping that they have and are now exploring different kinds of social interactions and other kinds of um, play behaviors and self-enrichment and, uh, you know, what do they do in their off time kind of thing. Now, can you tell us what doing research with beluga whales entails? When you send a student out there, what is it that they do? Because I remember having to sit down and learn how to do all of this. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So back in the days when you were doing it, we, we made it much more complicated than I think we really needed to. <laughs> but, um, but we were trying to, you know, figure out what was the best way to, to learn about belugas. So the first, you know, sort of it went through a couple of iterations over the years. So initially, you know, we, we started you know, with paper check behavior checklist. So you, you teach. So we work with students. And as I said, I'm at St. Mary's University, but I'm always willing to work with students from anywhere. You know, whoever's interested in, in learning about the animals or or, um, you know, just figuring out what it's like to do research from whatever angle we can can um, give them experience with. So the first thing we have to do is kind of learn the behaviors that they might um, show us. And then we have to know, we also need to know who is showing us the behavior. So we have to individually recognize the animals. And then you get to put all that together using a behavioral checklist, which is often done on paper when you know, you know, sort of what behaviors you're interested in. So given the fact that we had started with a calf behavior development and maternal care, we had certain behaviors that we were looking for that we kind of carried over from bottlenose dolphin research and added to the beluga studies because, again, not much had been done with um, beluga calf development um, prior to this, the beginning of this study. Um, so for a research assistant, they have to usually spend, I don't know, probably a good couple of months, you know, learning who's who and what behaviors they might see and then um, how to record that. And that's kind of where the difficult part came into play because we we transitioned from a paper ethogram to a much more complex electronic ethogram, which, you know, there are lots of systems out there, lots of variations that you can use. And we had customized one of the systems that allowed us to be able to, you know, use a, a palm pilot with a, a stylus and then, you know, push a button when something happens. And that's a pretty typical um, way of collecting data, but it becomes more complex because not only do you have to now know who you're looking at, you have to also know what the behavior is and know where it is on your ethogram so that you can click it at the right time and then turn it off when it's, you know, the behavior is done if we're collecting um, duration information or how long a behavior lasts. So that always, um, that was a challenge, but that's what we did for the first six years of our study was we, we used these electronic um, systems to be able to get real-time data and at the same time, we were supplementing with video recordings where, again, um, students and research assistants would come in and they would re video record an animal of interest. And so we, we always use um, we have two approaches now. We use a focal follow where you get to stay on one mother calf pair and you follow them for 15 minutes, continuously recording every behavior that you see happen. Um, obviously, as a person putting it on a piece of paper or in a in a computer, 
you're going to miss some stuff while you're looking down at the device. But when you videotape, you're less likely to miss things. And as long as you have excellent video recording skills and you keep your arm stable, you usually get it captured. Even if you didn't see it as the observer, it will be captured on the video recording. So, um, so that's usually, uh, it takes, you know, a good couple of months of a student going out, um, certainly a couple times a week, uh, to be able to get enough practice to, to a recognize the animals and b be able to record their behaviors accurately. Um, we often will do a lot of training. So, uh, it was, you know, I, I would bring in a student for the first time, show them, you know, sort of what they're looking at, show them different areas that we could be in to record um, the behaviors. And then I'm usually with them uh, most of the time for their first couple of months until we all feel comfortable that we know what's going on. Now, when it came to um, recording all those behaviors and taking that and breaking down all the information that you had learned, what comes from that? Where do you, uh, what comes from that? And then where does that information go? That's a great question. So, so the first thing, it's really easy to collect lots of data. The, the hard part is actually doing something with it and, and trying to process it. So what that translated to um, for the electronic data collection part where we were collecting the real-time stuff is we had to, you know, pull the information out of the, the database that it was recorded in and then uh, try to decide what behaviors we could focus on and what behaviors were captured, you know, accurately and, and how we could um, be able to demonstrate, you know, what we, what we might be interested in. So, for example, with um, looking at how calves develop from birth until the first year of life. And, you know, we've done this now with bottlenose dolphins, killer whales and belugas um, and other groups are working with other kinds of cetaceans. But generally what we're seeing is that the behaviors that we find when, you know, when does the calf try to leave mom? When does mom try to, you know, retrieve the calf? Um, are moms the same in terms of how often they retrieve their calf or allow their calves to leave? Um, how long, how often are they swimming with their moms? How, you know, how do they use their moms as a calf? You know, are they able to explore? And if they're exploring, do they need to come back to their moms periodically? Um, so, so a lot of different kinds of questions that we were looking at that, um, interestingly enough, after we've processed the data, we've learned a few things that appear to be universal um, across cetaceans, so across killer whales, belugas, and dolphins. And one of those things is babies like to leave and explore, and most of the times the moms don't like them to do that, particularly early on in, in their um, development. But one of the things that has been interesting has been the fact that belugas seem to allow their calves to explore a lot more than dolphins and killer whales do. So particularly very early within the first few months of life. So looking at studies like this, you know, where we have asked the same question across multiple species in the same kinds of environments, we see some universal responses. Now, the other part of all this is, you know, is it special to the animals at SeaWorld or do we see similar, similar behaviors across different facilities? And that's actually been one of the really great things that I've been able to do is create collaborations with a, a number of other uh, professors and researchers across um, the United States and across the world now where we've been able to explore the same kinds of questions with other populations of belugas, other populations of bottlenose dolphins. 
Um, and through these collaborations, whether it's with Georgia Aquarium or Shedd Aquarium or um, Marine Land of Canada, working with Dr. Michael Noonan, um, we've been able to show that whenever a beluga has a calf or whenever a bottlenose dolphin has a calf or a Pacific white-sided dolphin has a calf or a killer whale has a calf, they all seem to kind of show the same basic behaviors. And, and then what's even cooler is that those same behaviors are also observed in wild populations that they've been studying all these years. So I feel, you know, pretty comfortable with the fact that the information that we are looking at that will, you know, eventually process, whether it's through those electronic ethograms or just the video recordings, and, and those video recordings take a really long time to process uh, because you get, you know, they're great because you can stop and start and record specific behaviors but they take a very long time to process by students because it's kind of boring to look at lots of videos of right. bluegrass <laughs> that are really cute and do fun things, but sometimes they really do just swim for long periods of time while they take a rest. Um, <laughs> and those, you know, it's wonderful when the bluegrass are always playing or the killer whales are always playing, but at times they do need to take a snooze and, and that becomes some of the more difficult kind of, of coding. Um, but with that information, you know, as we start looking at it across different facilities, across different um, settings, whether that's in the natural habitat or at a facility, it's really great to be able to say that these behaviors are the same, they're conserved, you're seeing, you know, the same kinds of things. And so our goal is to get that information out. And so it will take, you know, we, we took data for the first, um, year of life for four calves and it took a good two years before we were able to publish uh information on the first two calves and then on the next two calves so the you know for me this is a process of, of patience it's a process process of perseverance um but you know with one of the only longitudinal studies ever continuous longitudinal studies of a beluga population that's remained relatively stable over all these years uh, it's pretty exciting what we've been able to do. So, you know, we try to get it out in journals. Um, obviously, venues like the Zookeeper's Voice is a great place to to be able to get it out. So, those are those are the places that we try to to get it out in the scientific fields and to the general audience. Well, we're so excited to have you use the Zookeeper's Voice as that venue. Um, now. One thing that I know we had spoken about, and I think this is an awesome opportunity to talk about it uh, for our listeners is the welfare of captive marine mammals. I think that's a very hot topic right now. And I think that for somebody like you, who for you know 20 years has been seeing the way that these animals are treated, the way that they are taken care of, and actually doing research on them, that you would have a very good view into that. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, my pleasure. It's... um. One of my most favorite topics to talk about because it it often takes people by surprise um, because there you know there's a lot of misinformation that's floating around and people are are really quick to jump onto and and uh, they don't realize just you know what an amazing opportunity we have to to look and watch and and research animals that are in our care. Um, you know one of the things that I have to start with is you know I. I have had the privilege of going into SeaWorld at any time during a day, at any day of the week, um, at any month or year, uh, and without announcing myself. And, and I can just show up and bring my students in and 
have my students go in and, and go and record. And, and our goal is to collect, you know, to look at the behavior when trainers aren't around, because, you know, it's very clear that when trainers are around, the animals are really interested in the trainers because they've obviously formed a number of relationships and uh, very close relationships with those those people and the people with the animals. And it's just a really beautiful thing to watch. It's it's also, you know, it's much like at home, you, the, the relationship you form with your children or the relationship you form with your, your personal pets. But it's even above and beyond that because they're so, you know, there's so much, it's such a privilege to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, the fact that I've been able to go in, you know, sometimes seven days out of the week, uh, multiple times in a given day through multiple areas and not just the belugas, but certainly with the killer whales and the dolphins and um, the sea lion area, you know, we, we can go in many times and just just be there. And and it has it's truly amazing to see, you know, the openness and the love and the relationships that's out there. So, you know, through all of my years, I've never seen anything that would cause any concern for me and if we're thinking welfare for the animals that's what that's what the humans are there for to to provide the best environment possible for the animals and and that comes in many forms it comes in the right social groupings um one of the things that we've really been able to to establish through the research with the belugas in particular is to really show that um, it's super important for them to be in as large of a social grouping as possible as often as they can. And that that social grouping should have um, different aged animals, it should have young animals, it should have older animals, um, it can have an adult male in it. And uh, whether that is like the wild or not, it's hard to know. But what we do know is that belugas will um, congregate adult males, adult females, calves, juveniles, into shallower waters during the summering time where they d generally do their breeding. So, you know, it seems pretty reasonable that you would have adult males present interacting with calves at times. But one of the things that we've really discovered is that um, young animals like to play and they play a lot. And when young animals are housed with older animals, we already know from humans that you know, adult humans don't play as often as kids play. And that seems to be the case across many species, whether they're aquatic or terrestrial. Um, but when you have younger animals around, their their playfulness is contagious. And the older animals will play more when you have younger animals engaging in different things. So you'll see them interacting with objects. You see them. Um, one of the really cool things about cetaceans is they create their own toys. They blow bubbles and they chase bubbles and um, they play with leaves and they like to eat their feces and spit them back out. <laughs> do, do, you know, all kinds of really bizarre things that you're like, okay, that looks entertaining. And obviously it's uh, fun because they keep re repeating it and doing it again. And so, you know, one of the, those are some of the things that we have found from all of these days going in that, you know, toys are great, um, social groupings are better, and being able to have multiple ages um, in the same social grouping is spectacular. And then one of the other things that we've learned from um, watching the belugas over these years is that the bonds that are forming at young ages are probably critical for their their future selves as adults. And, and that seems to be the case with bottlenose dolphins as well. Um, but in particular, we know that um, males, uh, male calves really like prefer other male calves and other male juveniles and other male adults. And that that would be their preferred um, partner if they had opportunities for social interactions with, with those sorts of things. And 
the females are not so you know specific they they seem to they'll play with anybody and every anything um and they really like to play with they often play with objects and then we see sort of a kind of a change over time although we haven't quite pinpointed when that happens yet but you know the males will continue to interact with other males and the females tend to to not interact with each other as often or interact with the males as often and this is a, a trend that we're seeing not just in san antonio but we've seen it in um, georgia and we've seen it in uh, at the georgia aquarium we've seen it at uh, marine land of canada with all of their belugas up there so it seems to be a pretty consistent um behavior and preference that that is emerging very early for belugas in particular because that's what we've been looking at the most um but i would say certainly that uh, the opportunities that we've had to to go in at any time the welfare of these animals is is i, I mean i can't can't ask for much more um, than what they have because they are uh, constantly stimulating themselves. They're stimulating, they're being stimulated by, with their interactions with the trainers. Their days um, vary from day to day and it's unpredictable, which is part of what we have to do for um, variability. I mean, we know with human children, structure is really good and it keeps them able to predict what's going to happen. But even within that structure, you build opportunities for unexpected experiences and, and playfulness and curiosity. And that keeps young children engaged. Um, and the point at which, you know, they're no longer engaged, they start causing trouble. They start doing <laughs> doing things we'd rather not them do. And so when I, when I come to SeaWorld and I see animals sometimes with toys and sometimes with people and sometimes in different social groupings and sometimes in different um, pool configurations, that, that's telling me that these animals are being, um, they're, they're being stimulated and they're being informed and they aren't doing things that they shouldn't be doing. They aren't uh, showing above uh, aggressive, you know, too much aggression. Um, that's obviously one of the things that we keep an eye for is making sure that the animals are in a relatively stress-free, non-aggressive social grouping um, that you worry about things happening. And uh, the trainers are really good at picking up on the subtle differences in behaviors if there's something going on socially. They, they figure it out really quickly and they're able to, to mitigate it if, if they need to. But usually the animals are pretty good about you know, kind of figuring out, all right, you need to take that space over there and I'll take this space for now and let's see how that goes. And, you know, when, when I'm asked about aggression, I mean, we, we hardly ever see it. We, we got super excited the other week, actually, because there were um, a couple of mom-calf pairs that were out, out in the front pool and um, the the anim we, have, we have the opportunity to have Tyunik, who um, was the first stranded, rehabilitated um, calf from the Cook Inlet population that uh, was not able to be released because of his age and, and physical condition. And he was out front minding his own business, but kind of kind of causing some some consternation, I think, for the for the females. And we started seeing them sort of produce some open mouth threats. And then they then it became like this we're just going to start yelling at everybody kind of thing. So it was super exciting because I was like, hey, look, they're actually engaging in some aggressive displays, which then broke up and everybody went their own way and, and it never escalated. But that that's how rare it is. You know, it never hardly ever happens where you end up with open mouth threats and 
and um, barking back and forth at one another. Um, for in this case, it didn't seem like there was any apparent reason. The the moms just seemed to sort of get going on it, and then and then it was like, okay, we're done, and off they went. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I can't can't say anything more about the welfare and 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 the things that our world has been doing and changing and raising the bar over and over and over again to to you know meet the needs of these animals as we uh, learn more and more about them is just truly incredible. So from somebody who has been watching and researching the behavior of these animals, if I had somebody who is listening to this episode of the zookeeper's voice and they're trying to learn more about how they're cared for, you would say that not only are all their needs met, but they are exceeded. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, these, these animals in that sea world, Georgia aquarium, the shed, um, you know, Marine land that, that it would be offensive for somebody to say that their, their needs were not being met and, and not exceeded because they are, I mean, taken care of better than many human children are. And certainly many pets and animals that are in human protection in the normal world. So, I mean, yeah, their, their needs are certainly met and, and exceeded um, on all the fronts that I've had the privilege of being at. Now, are there facilities that violate that? Yes, there are facilities that violate that, but I haven't worked with any of them, fortunately, which is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And I think that one thing that is important to remember is for those who do have concern about the welfare of animals and the well, the welfare of those who are in the care of man, that we all want the same things. We all want those animals cared for, and we all want them to live healthy, happy lives. Absolutely. Most definitely. That's, that's why I got into the field, to make sure that we could help, help them do that. And I think it's so important because you are getting an insight that even the trainers um, and those who work at the facilities don't really have the time to be able to sitting down to be sit sitting down for hours a day to record to do these things. And even though they can make time for that, they can't. They've there's so many things that go into those jobs that you having the insight and being able to give that to them really helps. Um, and adds to the quality of life for these animals. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I have to say, Danny, that, you know, it's been a real privilege to be able to, you know, make an observation, uh, you know, daily or every couple of days and, and can come back and say, hey, I saw this today. You know, what have you guys seen? And then they'll, you know, the trainers are able to come back and say, these are the things that we've seen. And so there's definitely a sharing of information that has certainly improved their lives. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that we've tried to, you know, show is that, you know, if you can create dynamic environments, the animals will give you dynamic behaviors. And, and I think that that um, has really helped with, you know, developing breeding experiences that are going to be conducive to, to the animals, developing social groups that is, that is best for them. And that two-way street has been so important all of these years. And, and it's really great when, the trainers I and mean, the trainers are always willing to listen. And then, you know, if you're talking to the upper administration they're, and they're willing to listen and they make the appropriate changes based on, you know, those things that we're noticing that they're confirming through their experiences. And you're right. 
they don't have time to look at the behavior. They do. They spend many, many hours trying to watch when they can, but their their world is so busy, you know, running back and forth, trying to make, you know, take care of all the, their commitments and obligations and their and their jobs and the animals that they just don't have the same time to, to watch those animals. And that's that's really great to be able to have that collaboration. It's so wonderful. Absolutely. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what um, you are currently researching? <laughs> yeah, um, too many things, I think. Um, <laughs> so currently with the, uh, with the beluga population in San Antonio, our, um, our goal has been to, to continue to follow the integration of Tyunic with the, the social grouping. So we had um, the privilege of being asked to care for Tyunic at SeaWorld San Antonio um, starting in April of uh, 2018. So he stranded in September of 2017 and was cared for 24 hours a day by um, Alaska Sea Life Center and, and a lot of the facility partners around North America. They sent many, um, the Shed, Georgia, uh, SeaWorld uh, organization, um, Vancouver, you know, they all went up to Alaska to take care of um, little Tyunik. And he has... Um, really, really just just grown and um, flourished under the care that he received. And, and San Antonio was given the opportunity because of the work that we were able to do um, in San Antonio to show and, and, then, and then be able to, to replicate that information at Marineland of Canada and, and Georgia Aquarium, um, but to really be able to show how important it was for him as a young calf, a male calf, to be with animals his age and um, and potential females that could potentially surrogate him. Um, because of his experience, I think, with humans, the an adult surrogate didn't work out so well for him because he really didn't know what he was supposed to do with an adult female. Um, he apparently lost his mom very early, and even though, you know, two weeks, three weeks old, maybe a month old, that probably wasn't sufficient time for him to really, you know, kind of get that idea of what it means to be a calf with a mom um, cemented. And so being cared for by humans from that time on until the point at which he came to San Antonio, where he was integrated with the belugas, he just really didn't kind of get this idea of what it means to be a mom-calf pair. But when he was placed with a, an, um, a male that was a little bit older than him, he kind of figured it out, which was really great. And he he realized that you know, I should, you know, it's, it's good for me to swim with this animal that's trying to swim with me. And, and I'm anthropomorphizing a little bit, but I mean, that's, that's kind of how, how it went um, along. And so, you know, part of our job right now is to, to really um, continue to monitor his behavior and his development and his integration with the social grouping. And um, it's really so interesting and exciting and it just really heartwarming to watch him become a little beluga. And he has, you know, he has his Tyunic moments, um, but he, he's doing quite well um, with his physical issues that they are having to monitor daily, um, and be a part of the larger beluga social grouping. So that's, that's one of the areas that we're working on. Um, we're also starting to look at, um, there's been a question in all of the development stuff that we've been working on about the role of contact. And, you know, when you start looking at how often, belugas touch one another or how often dolphins touch one another or how often killer whales touch one another. It's, you know, like humans, you're not always in constant contact. 
that can get kind of annoying after a while. And there right. are there are some people who really like a lot of contact and are the touchy feely individuals. And then there are other people who are like, yeah, you know, you know, touch my shoulder and that's enough. Um, and so, but we know that as a social species, contact is super, super important for uh, development of premature babies. We know that it's important for regulating emotions. We know that it's important for um, physiological changes. So uh, relieving stress, alleviating stress, so that so, you know, touch is important. It's it's super critical. So one of the things that we've been intrigued by is, you know, we know that calves touch their moms a lot. Um, in fact, calves are doing most of the initiation of touching with um, their mothers. And mothers will touch their calves, but not as often as the calves will. Um, and then what's curious is as you start to see them grow up, we see the calves, you know, maintaining contact with one another, but then they start doing it less often. And, and in our group, we rarely see adult females touch one another. And that seems to be consistent across a lot of the other facilities that are housing adult females together. Um, adult males are more likely to touch one another than adult females will. So, you know, one of our questions is, you know, is this true? across the populations of belugas that we have and you know how is it uh, facilitating relationships and and uh, bonding and those sorts of things and so that's kind of one of the areas that we're we're kind of looking at right now um we're also looking at uh, some creativity stuff and and how animals are uh, spontaneously creative so when they produce uh, behaviors um, on their own we're looking at how kind of original they are and uh, how complex those behaviors are. And then in some cases, we're working on trying to um, see what happens when they do that, when a trainer asks them to be creative in a sense. Um, so we're working with uh, some of Karen Pryor's um, ideas on on how to create uh, creative dolphins or creative killer whales or creative dogs. Um, so we have a variety of projects going on with that. Um, and then we are constantly working on maternal care and how calves develop over time. So uh, it's so exciting for me because we have been able to monitor the first, the first calf that was actually born in 2007. He stayed in San Antonio up till this last year when he was moved to uh, Florida to be with his half brother. Um, so we've watched him from 2007 until 2019. So we got to see the first 12 years of his development, which is unheard of. <laughs> and he has some pretty cool things that he he was doing. Um, so we were able to, to really start to see how does uh, sexual maturity occur um, from a longitudinal perspective uh, in belugas. And when do you begin to see courtship behaviors and, and how do you know when he's sexually mature and when he's playing with other animals? So those are a few of the things that we are um, currently working on. That's so amazing. And I'm so excited to continue to learn about all the things that you're researching and everything that you're bringing into the field that is, um, you know, positively impacting the lives of not just the animals, but the trainers who take care of them. It's my pleasure, and it's such a privilege to be able to do it. Well, um, before we let you go, is there anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Anything that you'd like to say? <laughs> I think um, if you're listening to the Zookeeper's Voice, then great. You know, keep keep doing it, because in a time where 
information can be so skewed based on the sources that it's coming from. And, and even, you know, this one is, you know, I'm biased, obviously, because I, I believe in, in what I do and I, and I want to make a difference in how people view animals and how we can protect our world um, and, and keep it, keep it conserved. So, you know, continue to seek out. I mean, that's, that's what we teach my students every single day is, you know, be a critical thinker, seek out the evidence. Don't just be swayed by, um, emotional arguments, but, but actually look at the evidence. And if it's not out there, ask for it, demand for it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Zookeeper's Voice. The door is always open for you to come on and talk to us about new topics or any new findings you have. We loved having you on today. Thank you so much, Danny. It was my pleasure. I know the audience didn't get to hear it, but before we interviewed Dr. Hill and even just talking to her during our interview, I loved catching up with her so much. That was really cool to see. Um, you know, we were trying to get the Skype going and for our phone call and you know for a better connection better quality for the show for our callers i'd never use the video right uh, because it it just it lags the connection a little bit mm -hmm. and when we connected and we were talking to her she's like no 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 no, put the video on i want to see her <laughs> you know, we haven't seen her in so long and it was a really really cool moment to witness you two kind of catch up yeah and one thing that i i obviously didn't touch on during our interview because the interview part was i wanted dr hill to talk about all the amazing things that she knows about. And she did. Yeah, she was so wonderful. Loved it. Um, one awesome thing that I'm so grateful and blessed that I got to do was when I was working at SeaWorld, um, my sister Katie, mm -hmm. um, shout out to Katie, whoop, whoop. and also to Megan because she's the only one we haven't mm -hmm. shouted out to. Meg. <laughs> um, she started doing, um, helping Dr. Hill out with her research. Uh -huh. And Katie came home one day and she said, I'm going to help do research with beluga whales. Ooh. And I remember just sitting near her and being like, Jealous. I want to do that. <laughs> How can I help? Yeah, right. And um, still to this day, but at that moment, um, I was just so hungry to learn more. And I can say that. Um, just everything I learned with helping out with research, you know, it's complicated. It takes time. It takes patience. And I learned so much. And I mean, I'm grateful for that opportunity, but it's so cool to see where all this research goes yeah, and how it sure. benefits the animals. And hearing all about it for the first time on my end was kind of cool. Hearing like what the interns and the students had to do to kind of record what was going on with the with the beluga whales. Right, exactly. And, you know, one thing that I hope that, you know, if somebody's listening and they wanted to learn more about the welfare of marine mammals, I really hope that one thing that they would take away is, you know, how well these animals are cared for. And, um, you know, the even things like researchers from prestigious universities in the area and not only that but all over the united states and possibly internationally at yeah, some point right um that all of these um groups and people they're all working together to learn more about the animals for their counterparts in their natural environment and um everything they're learning um benefits them and it everything is showing that they're better cared for than probably ourselves and you know even the animals in our lives right so on. right on so I just loved hearing from her and 
I feel like we could have picked her brain for a much longer interview if it's, we wanted to. It's amazing. We had Dr. Hill for about 39 minutes, and I think she might have talked for 36 of them. I had And it was perfect. really, it was great <laughs> to hear somebody that's so intelligent, so smart, and so knowledgeable in their field just blur, like, blurb all this knowledge onto us. And right. it was just fascinating to hear what she had to say. Well, and I think that it's really cool probably for our listeners who maybe haven't gotten the opportunity to meet somebody like Dr. Hill. I haven't. Um, to learn what else goes into the care of animals that are in the care of man. Sure. And why it's important for not only them, but like I said, for the counterparts in their natural environment. And there are so many moving pieces um, when it comes to this, but I mean, she is definitely one of the voices who is using science and fact. One of the zookeeper's voices, if you will. One of the zookeeper's voices, exactly. And that she, you know, she has seen a lot over her, what was it, 22 years of being a marine mammal Mm. researcher. So, I mean, and it's hard to, you know, for somebody who isn't sure where they, how they feel about animals being in the care of man, like, you know, she she's seen a lot and she has nothing but amazing things to say. So, and, you know, I'm excited to also see what else she is going to come up with. All of her new projects coming up. How exciting is all of that? So much stuff coming in the, uh, in the horizon. Creativity? Like, yeah. I mean, it, I, ca- I can't even come up with words. Like, because all I want to know is, tell me what you guys find out. Because right. how exciting is that? extremely exciting <laughs> well um what do you think bill any last words about dr hill no i just uh, want to thank dr hill for uh giving us her time so graciously i mean like i said we got 39 minutes out of her for the recording but i think we were had on the phone with her for about two hours with you guys <laughs> with you guys catching up so i know we graciously thank dr hill for her time and um we look forward to maybe having her again in the future absolutely again the for her the door is always open i mean I, we could have picked her brain probably for a full eight hour day and for real would have had to go to sleep and start again the next day. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I completely agree. We're so grateful to have her on and I'm so excited to continue to see what her research, um, and the research of all of the other facilities that she's working with, what comes about with that. That's, we're such an exciting time to be living in, especially, you know, when we want to be, supporting our zoos aquariums sanctuaries all of that this is an awesome time to be seeing that happen all right for our listeners um don't forget to rate and subscribe on itunes spotify or wherever you download your favorite podcasts and be sure to stay up to date with all the happenings here at the zookeepers voice on twitter instagram facebook and the zookeepersvoice.com for the past present and future of all animals This has been The Zookeeper's Voice. We'll see you next time.